As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, welcome to the Austin and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. As usual, we'll bring you exclusive insight and stories from our team of writers, joined by David Ornstein, Adam Crafton, and The Athletic's Manchester United correspondent, Laurie Whitwell. We're going to look today at David's exclusive story on Meza Ozil leaving Arsenal. Uh, we'll look at the fallout from Liverpool, Manchester United, and also Chelsea apparently stepping up their pursuit of Erling Haaland. Let's start, though, with Mesut Ozil. David breaking the news on Saturday morning that he'd reached an agreement to leave Arsenal and end his seven-year spell at the club and move to Fenerbahce. What are the numbers involved? How, how did they eventually get to the stage where he's off their books? What we do know is that Mesut Ozil will be leaving some money on the table. We don't know how much money that it, that is but he will be foregoing a proportion of the money that he is owed by Arsenal because obviously he was due to be under contracts until the end of June 2021. He's over in Turkey now finalising the transfer. So Arsenal just need to work through through the paperwork with, with their lawyers, Ozil's lawyers, the Fenerbahce lawyers. Ozil then needs to, to pretty much uh, just undergo a medical, put pen to paper on the, a deal that has been agreed for, for a little bit of time. And um, that will bring the curtain down on one chapter and raise it on another. And um, yeah, plenty to get stuck into for us too. Within the club, how do they feel about how it's ended? When you tweeted this out, what was the Arsenal fans' reaction? Symptomatic of the last few years, which has been a split fan base over Mesut Ozil, the reaction to his departure has been divided too. Uh, there's been quite a lot of nostalgia now that it's over. Memories of all the good times that Arsenal had under him or with him. But there has been a lot of resentment as well that since his new contract in 2018, it for one reason or another, many reasons actually, it's gone pretty much downhill throughout. A lot of fans, sad to see him go, a lot pleased to see the back of him. A lot of fans angry with Arsenal, a lot of fans pleased with Arsenal. Within the club, that mixture of emotions is replicated. They wish that it would have worked out better from the club's point of view, from Ozil's point of view, but they recognise 
that by this point it just had to come to an end. He went to say his goodbyes at London Colney on Sunday and I don't think there was any great song and dance, any huge presentation. It's obviously difficult with the COVID restrictions about what buildings you're allowed to be in and how close you can get to each other. At least by the end, it was an amicable, dignified and cordial exit. It sounds like Edu, Arsenal's technical director, was very impressive in in the negotiations over the termination. Very straightforward from Fenerbahce's point to, of view to deal with and from Ozil's camp's perspective. A bit of a strange situation because obviously... It's been a fairly bitter lead up until this point and now it's all over. I guess there was respect and professionalism on all sides uh, at at the at the end. Yeah, David, given the uh, I suppose how how difficult it's been between Ozil and Arsenal over the last few months and with I mean it's been quite fast to put on, you know, social media at times where you've had Ozil almost commentating along during matches. Why why did they wait so long to come to this agreement? Why couldn't they do it back in October, November, were there still hopes that Arteta might bring him back into the fold or that he might show something? Why why have they waited this long to do it? Well, they could, of course, done it even earlier. Mm. They could have done it at some point in 2020 when the writing appeared to be on the wall because Mikel Arteta, despite starting him in each of his first 10 matches as Arsenal manager before the lockdown, didn't play him a minute after that. It would have been obviously far more expensive to ask for Arsenal to do so at that stage. And I don't think that was something they were contemplating. I'm not sure they knew it was the complete end for him. There were some discussions between Arsenal and Ozil's representatives about finding a solution, but it was never mentioned that they would pay off his contracts at that point. It was always about trying to help him find a transfer um, to another club. Uh, He also, as we reported on The Athletic, I think in early October that in September, he received a loyalty bonus of around £8 million. And there are some who say he wouldn't have been prepared to leave before that, unless, of course, Arsenal paid him off all of his salary and the loyalty bonus. Once that was done and the beginning of October came, they had a decision on their hands. From Arsenal's perspective, are we going to reintegrate him and register him for the for the squad for the upcoming season in the Premier League and Europa League, or are we going to leave him out? Very late in the window, it was relayed, we understand, to Ozil that there was a chance he wouldn't be registered because they had no intention of playing him. They had other options, etc. And it was at that point that they kind of knew for the first time that he might not be registered, but there was only three or four days to go until the transfer window shut. And for a transfer, uh, for a move of this magnitude, that just isn't enough time. Previously to that, you're right, he was always determined to fight his way back into contention and win a place back in the, the side. He said that to us in two interviews we've done with him. And from having been the person who was speaking to him on both occasions, I I really sense that was authentic, that he believed he would go to the last day of his Arsenal contract because he could play. But when he wasn't registered for the the Europa League and Premier League squads, he knew at that point that, that it was pretty much game over. And so with more time heading into the January window and no indication from either side or no feeling from either side that that squad situation was going to change and he'd be re-registered, I think that's when he instructed his people to sort out a move. Talks could start legally at the start of January and they struck this deal with with Fenerbahce that uh, seems to suit all parties. You will know, 
there are all sorts of rumours around why he why he didn't play. Do do you think they are just rumours? Do you think there are stories that will come out in the future about why he hasn't been in in the squad? I'd like to think I would have known about those already. I've heard the same things as you that it was. Well, he 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 intimated in the interview that we did with him. I think it was in August that he feels it was related to um, not accepting the pay cut and his stance on that, which of course didn't go down well at Arsenal because they wanted everybody to take it. They wanted it to be unanimous, as far as we know, or. It was reported he was the only one. He said in our interview that he thinks there were others who didn't take the cut. And why did only his name come out? So that's a factor that that we should take into consideration, I guess. There was his very forthright comments and statement in December of 2019 on the treatment of Uyghur Muslims in China. Uh, but he did play after that point. He, As we said, he played all of Arteta's games in the Premier League before the uh, COVID-related shutdown of football. I don't know, since then, uh, there have been incidents like Gunnosaurus that we reported that that wouldn't have gone down well with the club. It was sort of quite embarrassing from their perspective, uh, offering to pay for him after um, the man in the suit was, was made redundant. Arsenal's view has always been that it's footballing reasons solely um, and that their analysis suggests that he's not at the level... To, to do what they want from from that type of player anymore. And they watch him in training and maybe his attitude and his, his standards are not where Mikel Arteta wants them to be. He has always maintained that he has never changed his standards in training throughout his entire career, nor his body language, and that it is purely the perception of him from coaches. Arsene Wenger clearly worked with that in a way. Unai Emery and and Mikel Arteta clearly expected more. Do I think more will come out in in the coming times? Yeah, there may be nuggets of information about what's happened over the last few years. And, and, you know, we're preparing a piece that will go out uh, when this move is official, which will explain some of that. But I don't sense, and I stand to be corrected, that there's some sort of smoking gun here, that some some extraordinary uh, revelation that will will unravel this entire mystery. I just think for some on and off field reasons, it's been um, gradual decline in relations, in opportunities, uh, and ultimately it's led us to a point that is no great surprise to, to anybody, although regrettable to many. United have obviously got, sorry to, to change the club, but, <laughs> but United have got a few players in, in these situations and and clearly there's discussions going on with a, with a number of players over there, agreements over cancelling contracts and, and the payoffs. And I just am intrigued to know perhaps a little bit about the, the negotiations. I know you, it's, you know, it's, it's very difficult to put a, a price, a figure on uh, what he might have given up as Ozil, but it's that sort of balance, isn't it, between a player wanting to get free and be able to play a game, but also not giving up too much of his salary that he's committed to. I I don't imagine it would be a huge amount of money, given that Ozil is entitled to his salary until the end of his contract. It was Arsenal's decision ultimately to move him on. And that's why he always said he was staying to the end, because he says that he wanted to still be at Arsenal. And as such, you would, of course, expect to be paid all of your money, you know not my decision to go sort of thing. In the circumstances of his le- him leaving, what we don't know is how much Fenerbahce are able to pay at this point in time. There are 
some complications with their finances, it, it may be possible going on precedent that they might not be able to pay, for example, until the summer when they would have ideally probably liked to have taken him. And if that's the case, then of course, Arsenal would be expected by Ozil to keep paying him in, in, in some way or another. I don't think it's going to be a case of him receiving two full salaries. Definitely not. And so I would imagine that, you know, there's a, there's a, there's an agreement of sorts, but I don't think it would be anything drastic. And if that's the case and Ozil receives most of his money from Arsenal, then you're in a position where you say Arsenal have basically moved him on to move him out of the club, mm-hmm. not to save money, not to free up a squad space because he didn't have one anyway, just to get him away. And that's really sad when you think back to his great days as an Arsenal player. Sorry to put you on the on the spot on this, but if if you have... You know, you look at the way that Ozil's been interpreted by by pundits, by journalists, by his two managers, Emery and Arteta. What, what's the reaction been, I suppose, this season from the players, those who he's been alongside in the dressing room for the last few years? I mean, I just saw on on your column on the Athletic this morning talking about how Aubameyang and Lacazette are already having a joke over who takes the number ten shirt, but. Has the has the the current of feeling in the dressing room been with him, or have players just sort of sidestepped it a little bit? You may have to judge it over the course of time. Mesut Ozil was a a very popular character in the dressing room as far as as far as we know in through you know in in the majority of his Arsenal career. We heard quite a few stories about Alexis Sanchez being quite a difficult character, not especially popular with with some teammates having some run-ins with teammates and staff. Maybe that was a bit his character, but also his relentless desire to play and win. And even if he was injured, he would go out on the training pitches. It didn't always go down well. Mesut Ozil has been very popular with his closest friends, clearly a bit of a sort of German speaking clique in, in Skodra Mustafi, Sad Kolasinac. Obviously he, he, he clearly got quite friendly as you'd see on social media with Matteo Guendouzi. Some young players looked up, up to him greatly. Imagine, you know, being a young player at Arsenal when you sign this superstar from Real Madrid and a World Cup winner a year later. And then there were some other players too. I think Danny Welbeck, for example, was very close to him and they shared, I remember reading that they shared a holiday together at one point. Staff have spoken well of him as a a person and a human. Some staff question his training standards and, and work rates. Others have said that they had no problem with him at all. But then you come to more recent times and the acrimony with Unai Emery you know, suggests that he was probably possibly ostracized a little bit within the squad because he wasn't he wasn't a key part of it, clearly by that point. And so, you know, while being a popular figure, you're not around people as much. He missed quite a few games. He was left out of squads. And and as you know, when when you're preparing for match days in these clubs, you often line up against the first team, the starting eleven, and and that wouldn't, I'm sure, have sat well with with Özil. And then you know things got a bit better under Freddie Lundberg and and Arteta. And I don't think those sorts of coaches would welcome someone back into the team if they were deeply unpopular. Mm-hmm. To the contrary, I think they were broadly popular. But I'm sure there were some elements of the dressing room that could see what was happening and are not stupid and were in favour with those coaches and so probably didn't have such a good view of Mesut Ozil. I'm sure that there is that. They have influences around them as well, probably telling them what they think of Ozil. And so I'm sure it wasn't unanimous support for him, but broadly quite popular. And and and, and what, what was really tricky, of course, would have been the wage cut situation because 
he had Mesut Ozil not taking it, telling us in, in his interviews that he felt especially disappointed or, or sorry for the young players. Many of those don't have much of a say in these matters. You know, they're trying to make their careers at Arsenal and they're being asked to take a pay cut and, and they're probably quite fearful of saying no. Whereas somebody of Ozil's stature doesn't care about that sort of thing. He clearly stands up for what he feels is right. And so it makes for a really difficult dynamic behind the scenes with teammates. And I don't know, a little bit strange seeing those um, Instagram lighthearted comments mm. between Aubameyang and Lacazette. I don't think they'd actually said a farewell before they were already joking about the the, the shirt number. And and while they appear to, from previous interactions to have been quite good friends of, of Mesut Ozil, it did feel a, a little bit odd. I know the number 10 jersey has been a talk among sections of the squad in the last few days already but of has course it? Those- has it I mean I know, I know squad numbers can be quite a big thing for 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 some players and at, and at some clubs but it it strikes me as a very Arsenal thing to finally get rid of what is perceived as a problem around the place in Mesut Ozil get get rid of him and right we start afresh and then have a massive bundle between the squad as to who gets his shirt I, I don't think it was anything serious as I said, I, I thought it was a bit odd coming before goodbyes, but that's a public thing. And they did say their goodbyes privately to Urzo at the training ground. And, and it can be lighthearted, but Laurie, you will know from the Manchester United side of things, you know, the, the story was Ante Martial's form fell off mm. a cliff because he lost the number nine shirt to Zlatan. I mean, I think- for, for some of them, it's a really important thing, particularly when a lot of them have their numbers on their social media handles as well. Well, absolutely. Well, Anthony Marshall, as you say, had it ready to go that summer as a sort of big brand launch and then it's whipped away from him. So not only is he taking a bit of a commercial hit, but a kind of status hit, you know, yeah. and, and obviously then was was pushed to the wing and, and you know, Ibrahimovic and Lukaku both uh, in that centre striker role. Uh, and then, I mean, yeah, customarily now, you know, clubs don't announce the number of the player. Ahmad Diallo was one, for example, United confirmed his arrival this month and, and sort of then trailed his, his squad number for another post because they want to get sort of hits on on two stories for the website. So, um, yeah, it, it, it has become uh, quite a, a significant talking point, sort of squad numbers uh, for, for certainly among fans as, as well as maybe among players. He has had the shirt number this season. It's not gone. Are we we going there already, Adam? (laughs) Uh, A quick one. How how do you think he'll be uh, remembered within the Premier League? Adam, you go first. I I think, I I suppose the longer we go and the more time that goes on, the the more fondly he'll probably be remembered. I think that's the way it tends to work, isn't it, with with these things. Um, I I remember seeing him play for Arsenal against Leicester. I think it was Leicester at home early in Brendan Rodgers' period and he he was unbelievable for 45 minutes of that game. I think he'll be remembered as someone capable of brilliant moments, but probably not a brilliant player for Arsenal. A bit like, you know, if Paul Popper was to leave Manchester United at the moment, you'd say there's been some fabulous moments, but did he really do everything he could to be the best he could be um, at that football club? Probably not. Laurie? Yeah, un- unfulfilled promise probably. I'm, I remember when you know, he signed for Arsenal and the, the massive fanfare and the the expectation and the fact that Arsenal had kind of gazumped probably Manchester United to, to get him. Uh, and I was, I was actually sent over to Germany to do a background on him uh, when he was playing for the German national team. And that was that was quite fun sort of finding out about his, um, you know, uh, growing up on you know cage football um, in Gelsenkirchen. And um, so I 
So he clearly was an incredibly talented player, the ball manipulation and some of the goals, as Adam says, you know, I'm sure we'll look back on and think, wow, what, what a talent. But I think just that ultimately un- unfulfilled promise at Arsenal. David, finally? It will be split into two parts, the pre and post 2018 contract renewal Ozil. Before it, he did some magical things. There was a 3-0 win against Manchester United at the Emirates, 3-0 win, 3-1 against Chelsea at the Emirates a year previously. There was that incredible goal in the Europa League where he sort of ran half the length of the pitch only a couple of years ago. That that was under Emery as well. But there's so many layers to this story in terms of why it went wrong and his version versus the club's version and how Arsene Wenger put his arm around him and the other coaches didn't, that he won't be remembered as a Premier League great, but he was one of the great players who played in the Premier League and was capable of so many great moments. There was an incredible moment when he brought it back to 3 all, I think, or 3-2 against Liverpool at the Emirates uh, with an amazing goal where he sort of kicked the ball into the ground, which became a bit of his trademark. The Premier League seems to have lost so many of its creators, its mercurial talents, and, and that's we can do a podcast on that in itself. And, and Ozil is definitely one of them. We look at the likes of Thiago and Bruno Fernandes now and, and hopefully they can take it on. But the football has become much more pragmatic, mechanical, results-orientated rather than performance, which I understand to an extent. But it's a shame that there's not a place now for an Ozil in modern football. But he must take his share of responsibility as well because when he signed his new contract, I think Arsene Wenger said he was now expected to become a leader and help this team to more success. And unfortunately, for many reasons, that didn't happen. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's move on. Uh, we won't talk uh, Arsenal anymore because we're going to talk the title race now. Hi, <laughs> Bob. <laughs> uh, You're right, waiting for uh, that one, haven't you? Yeah, I know. Yeah, cyclical. David's smile. Um, Liverpool and Manchester United were goalless yesterday. How have United fans reacted 
to that in chats with you, Laurie? I think broadly, positively, um, I mean, you know, as we were discussing off air before the game, you know, we did the Q&A when, when the team sheet drops and a lot of fans were critical of the team selection, Cavani out of the team and Eric Bailly out of the team, which I think you can debate certainly both of them, uh, but the kind of venom that was directed towards Solskjaer for those selections, I'm always a bit quizzical over because the match hasn't happened yet. Uh, and, and as it happened, I thought Lindelof had a really good game and United had the two best chances. So when you go to a place like Liverpool, Anfield, you know, not beaten there in the Premier League since April 2017, not been denied uh, scoring since uh, October 2018 against Manchester City. So those sort of two aspects, I think you have to look at it and go, it's, it's a point gained, but perhaps the way the match went, it felt a bit like a missed opportunity. Certainly that's what Solskjaer sort of reflected on afterwards, the fact that they had Fabinho and Jordan Henderson at centre-back and could United have actually taken advantage of that to a great degree and made a real statement win. Um, I think it was possibly there for them to, to do that. You know, I, I think I've mentioned it a few times, but the way that Leicester went to Man City and won in the season that they won the title um, you know unexpectedly I think that, that was a Liverpool yesterday was a potential for United to do that so I suppose in the fullness of time you'll see you know if, if they go to Fulham and win that game then it, it sustains the run the unbeaten away form as well and I think you can see progress certainly from the last two visits to Anfield when United were you know beaten fairly comfortably I think certainly a nil-nil having had the better of the, of the quality chances is to be sort of praised well that was Solskjaer's point Adam afterwards was you know it's only a good point if they win the next one yeah and it's, it's always going to be that way I agree with Lowy I thought United were absolutely fine yesterday in terms of how they set up emphatically all, fine <laughs> emphatically <laughs> fine yeah I, I thought you know all these top, what you would consider conventional top six games this season have been a bit like this Man City and Liverpool basically settled for a draw Man United and Man City drew 0-0 Chelsea and Spurs drew 0-0 it's almost like everyone was just so stunned by Spurs going to Old Trafford and winning 6-1 that they've all been spooked out of having a go in, in, in these matches. But I think at this point, everyone's just keen to make sure that when it gets to March, they're, they're, they're around it. And I think that's, that's the way it's playing out at the moment. No one's really pulling away. Man City have had three or four good weeks. Let's see if it becomes seven or eight good weeks. I think from Manchester United's point of view, they can say they've gone to Anfield had the better chances. You know, De Gea made what one save from the Thiago strike from distance. There was nothing really, you know, to really concern them. I, I don't agree with this idea that's come out after the game that United should have gone through it in the first 45 minutes. I think when you go to Anfield, you have to respect the occasion that you're playing and you earn the right to play. And then as the game goes along, those moments emerge and they had probably three or four moments where they, where they could should have scored. So I think it was as good as Manchester United could have got at this moment in time. I think the problem they do have is they've got an inconsistent forward line and they don't have, unless Cavani you know, has that run in the team and comes good, I think they've got a bit of a problem in terms of Greenwood, Rashford and Martial in terms of someone producing a moment of real certainty in a big game. They're not, they're not getting goals in these, in these big games and those players have asked for a lot of responsibility over the last couple of years and they've in some ways, they've stepped up to that. But I think, you know, if United are going to go from being challengers to major contenders, that's what has to change. They have to get more goals out of either Rashford, Martial or, or um, Greenwood. Adam, you mentioned the Tottenham results mm. and it seemed doom and gloom at United when they were beaten by Arsenal at Old Trafford. And then when we think about Liverpool's 
rampant last couple of years. Admittedly, they've had a dip, they've had their injuries, etc. But they're still capable of tearing teams apart. I know what the likes of Mika Richards have said about you don't win a, a league title with what Manchester United have got. But my goodness, and I don't want to be the, the sort of um, sympathiser here, maybe a bit of an antidote to the other two, but this is this is not a bad platform to be building. I know Manchester United's expectations are different, but it seems a bit of a, a knee-jerk reaction to to kind of dismiss a nil-nil at Anfield. Totally. I, you know, if you'd have offered that to United before the game, that have, have snatched it. To leave Anfield still top of the league, almost halfway through the season, Really good. I think as well, I think some of the things that are being said about Liverpool are a bit unfair at the moment in terms of, you know, they're having a bit of a tricky period, but I think for them to be in the position they're in without their two first choice uh, centre-backs, not really having had Thiago fit for most of the season as well, Jota being now, I think if you'd have offered them to be within punching distance of the top two at this point, they'd be happy. I think if you go round all the sort of probably apart from Mikel Arteta, if you go round those managers at the top of the league, I think they'll all be quite happy. And there's no one, that there's been a sense of, apart from Frank Lampard, there's, there's been a sense of crisis around, you know, United early on in the season, City a little bit, but no, none of it's really convincing. And, and you're almost just waiting for something to happen this season that really sparks it into life. Yeah, and Laurie, they used to be great front runners in the second half of the season, United, but obviously this is a completely different era. And when you look at the form of City, I don't think United will be getting carried away, like uh, really starting to think they're title contenders yet, or am I wrong? I think they have to think they're title contenders because it's such an alien year. And if they if they don't, then they're, they're passing up an opportunity that's, that's right in front of them. That being said, you're spot on. I think City do look... You know they look resilient, don't they? The back line they've got sorted, and the, the you know the way they dismissed Crystal Palace was impressive. It's a number of wins in a row now for them, and they they were always the bookies' favourites even before this weekend's um, games. They were, I think, uh, you know, leading the the betting, and and that makes sense just because of the way they've they've done it in you know the past two out of the last three seasons. And Solskjaer, to be fair, was very pointed. I think it's probably in terms of managing expectations. But before the game, I asked him about the change in mentality from being uh, the pursuer to, to, to now actually leading the race. And he was very much uh, making the point that United are still the hunters rather than the hunted. And I, I mean, listen, that's a classic managerial tactic, isn't it? I think Klopp probably did the same um, a couple of times when, when Liverpool were in the hunt and, and he wanted to just make sure that there wasn't any kind of case of getting too excited. Um, but yeah, I think United have to see this as an opportunity because the points total just won't be as high as it has been you know, in the last three seasons. So, you know, why not go for it this season? Admittedly, as Adam says, I think there needs to be a big performance from United in a, in a really big game. So that, that, that one at the Etihad is, is sort of looking the likeliest that you wonder if they need to go there and win that game. They've, they've done it before, you know, they've done it under Solskjaer twice. So it wouldn't, you know, it's not impossible. So, but yeah, I think they have to consider themselves the title contenders. Um, there are certain ex-pros and pundits who who are still uh, quite cynical when they talk about Paul Pogba with me saying, oh, well, you know, he's, he's upped his form at the moment with the possibility of a move and the club are going to have... Actually, they do have a will have a decision to make this summer. Yeah, huge decision. It was something I wrote about uh, in November, I think it was, just the fact that it didn't look like he was going to sign a new contract. You know, those, those talks had been parked and United therefore had 
uh, you know, we could, could sell him in January. It was always, you know, very unlikely that was going to happen. But, you know, next summer was going to be the big one. You know, th- this one that we're coming up to, you know, in a few months now. Um, what do they do? You know, because if they keep him, they'll end up losing him on a free, you'd think. If they, but then c- can they sell him and get enough money? Are the clubs out there that, that are willing to pay that kind of transfer fee, then also give him the wage that he would obviously demand. Um, so it's going to be an interesting one for United, what they do. Ideally, I think they'd like to, you know, if, if he is intent on leaving, as his agent has expressed, then they would like to sell him for, a, you know, some you know significant amount of money and reinvest that in another player that they could, that would clearly want to be at the club. You know, I, I'm a massive fan of Jack Grealish, uh, James Madison. I thought, you know, they've, they've looked at him previously and I, I was really impressed with the way he spoke after the game uh, for Leicester the other day. Um, so, you know, you've got op- options there, but they clearly need to get money in for him before, I think a swap deal, which is what a lot of the European clubs will try and do. Does that appeal for United? Will they be getting a player uh, in the door that is really what they want. I think Solskjaer's shown that actually he's, he's quite happy to make the point that he only wants players in that he, he really does want. Although I suppose we've still got a question mark over Donny van der Beek uh, at the moment, you know, hopefully. I mean, maybe maybe he's the replacement already, you know, in the building, although he is a different type of player to Paul Pogba. So yeah, but it's a very live issue and and, and I wonder, I, I, I'm, I'm probably more... Uh, you know, enjoying. I mean, I've I've been scathing of Paul Pogba at various times. You know, last season when he was you know recovering from injury, you know, with basketball sessions in Miami, I was rolling my eyes, and, and you know the the the, the, um, the the rooftops in Dubai um, didn't really seem to correlate with a player that was busting a gut to get back into a team that was failing and, and needed his inspiration. But I wonder if the prospect of United winning a title or, or going for a title race at least has, has invigorated him. You know, as, as we saw the World Cup with France, when there's a clear objective on the horizon, he can, you know, produce some really good performances. And I, I wonder if that's sort of at play here rather than a, a sort of more obvious uh, attempt to just raise his transfer value and, and make sure that he gets a good club. You know, I'm sort of more, more leaning on the... You know, maybe it's a, a naive of me to think that way, but that's the way I'm, I'm leaning at the moment. Right. Adam went through a whole variety of facial expressions <laughs> during uh, during that answer, so I can't work out what what <laughs> what you agreed with Adam and what you didn't agree. With. That's just Adam. Um, no, yeah, no, I agreed with the bit in uh, Dubai and Miami. I think with Pogba, I mean, people are talking about him over the last few weeks as though he's he's gone out and won a load of games for Manchester United. He's you know he's had two or three good performances, um, and I'm. I'm wary of coming across a bit sort of Roy Keeney here, but yeah, he, he was quite—he was good against Aston Villa. He scored a deflected winner against Burnley. He worked hard yesterday. <laughs> a vo- <laughs> deflected. I know it was deflected, but it was a good volley. It was a good volley, but you know it wouldn't have gone in if it wasn't deflected. I think you know he's been—he's been good, but he's not—you know—he's not gone out and won a load of games for Manchester United and defined the season for them. I thought he was good yesterday. He had the chance to define the game. He wasn't able to do it. It was a good save. I, you know, he still, I still think he had a really damaging impact on the team in terms of that European campaign um, with the agent's comments coming out before uh, the Leipzig game. I don't think that's something that should be forgotten very quickly. I think it's up to him, isn't it? You know, we know the talent he's got. I think one of the interesting things is if you if you lose Paul Pogba, how do you replace him? Because he's almost a he doesn't have a position. So you you know you lose Pogba, you don't think oh we need to get a holding midfielder or we need to get an attacking midfielder, we need to get a winger. He sort of does a bit of everything and and master of none at the moment. You know, for a world class central midfielder, actually to still not be trusted to play at Anfield 
as part of a three-man central midfield, I thought was quite interesting yesterday that, you know, United couldn't afford to risk going with one holding midfielder and playing Pogba and Fernandes. So he's still having to play out on the wide, quite an unnatural position for him. I thought he did well in that position, but I don't think United are, lose, are going to be losing something hugely defining to them. But then there's always this contradiction that if he really buckles down, he could be the difference for them. And that's what makes it so hard to work out where that whole journey with United and popular, it's always what it could be rather than any evidence of what we've seen it what we've seen it is. And for that very reason, at a club like Manchester United, who have given this a fair amount of time now, and we factor in his comments, those of his his agent, we should say, um, which shows a clear direction of travel from their point of view. The view of me as an outsider is that he can have a contribution this season, do well. It doesn't appear that he'll gain any sort of consistency on the long term if he wants to leave and will bring in good money and there will be decent offers for him. Just get this over with, part amicably and and then we know there's admiration for the likes of Grealish and Madison. Look to the next opportunity and somebody that can take United back to the level that they want to be on on a consistent basis. I don't, I don't think it's one that looks from the outside to be going on for much longer, even if he does do well towards the end of the season. I do think as well, there's a sense that United have a lot of players in that team at the moment who all want to do the killer thing when they get the ball, whether that's the killer pass straight away or get a shot off straight away. I think Popper's another of those players. And you, you know, you watched them yesterday and they're all very impatient to play that one ball over the top or that get that one shot away. You see that with Fernandez, often with Martial, with Rashford, with Greenwood. And I don't think it would harm them to have a couple more players in the team who actually are just confident dictating play, keeping the ball, slowing it down at times, rather than always having to go very, very quick on that counter-attack. So I, I don't think it would be as bad for United as maybe it, it appears at the moment that it would be to lose Pogba. Speaking of Paul Pogba's agent, uh, in the column, David, there's a story about one of his uh, other clients and that Chelsea are keen to usurp everybody else and sign Erling Haaland. Yeah, this is a story brought to us by Simon Johnson, our colleague on The Athletic, uh, who reports on Chelsea, has some great contacts in and around the club. And he says that Chelsea are going to make a really big push to sign Haaland in the summer of 2021, which is a year before his uh, release clause comes into effect. And the view from some at Chelsea clearly is that many clubs will be waiting for that release clause uh, and Chelsea might be able to nip in. We've seen how much they've spent over the last year following their transfer ban. Um, We've seen how decisively they've moved to secure some of the uh, best talents in in European football, um, in theory, not so much in practice recently, but they'll hope that changes. And Harling could well be the next one on that list. Now, they will need a striker because uh, Olivier, Olivier Giroud's contract is scheduled to expire. Tammy Abraham is yet to renew a contract that expires in 2023. Timo Werner, they will of course hope comes good, but he probably isn't that sort of hold up central man. He 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 may be seen as playing off of somebody like uh, Haaland, according to Simon's report. There are, however, complicating factors here. 
even this summer, those other clubs are not stupid. If Chelsea are in, there will be other clubs in. The likes of Manchester City have been linked with him, Manchester United, but having already missed out on him once and Laurie may tell us more, I don't see that being a realistic one second time round. Real Madrid is said to be his preference. If they can afford it, then uh, that will be a really interesting one to watch because they, and this brings me on to my next point about Raiola, tend to pay higher agents fees. And Mino Raiola has shown throughout his career unashamedly that he operates on the basis of, in part, who will pay the biggest uh, or the required agents' commissions. Uh, Dortmund seemingly did that to get Haaland. Will Chelsea be willing to go down that road? Abramovich, Marina Granovskaya, uh, especially when they had a bad experience with Raiola when they tried to bring Romelu Lukaku back. I think it was in 2017-18 when he joined Manchester United. Um, he's no longer with uh, Mino Raiola, to my understanding, but that was a bruising experience with him. And there'll be other factors at play as well the boy's preference, not least. But what we're reporting is that Chelsea are going to make a concerted effort to sign him next summer. If Chelsea got the funds then, do you think, David, after sort of the spending so heavily in um, this summer? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, we know Roman Abramovich has the funds and shown plenty of willing to spend it over the last year to sort of propel Chelsea back to where he wants them to be. It's clearly going to take time. Financial fair play rules have been relaxed somewhat, but you can't just turn a blind eye to that. It would be breaking their transfer record if they were to do it this coming summer and not wait for the clause, uh, a record that has been set by Kai Havertz. But Chelsea will also be looking to get players out. Uh, They failed to do as much as they wanted to through the exit door last summer. They will try again this January as we record this. Danny Drinkwater has been announced on loan to a Turkish club for the rest of the season. Little incremental deals like that, which relieve space on their wage bill for the time being and then try to move them on permanently in the summer. If they can't move them on permanently in January, the likes of Marcus Alonso, for example, maybe uh, Fakayo Tomori, um, who sounds like he's going to AC Milan on loan with a 30 million option to buy. So there is space to manoeuvre there before you think about Abramovich and the opportunity again to get a generational talent like Erling Haaland, I suppose, without knowing Chelsea's finances inside out, that they can finance it. And if they don't, somebody else will. Well, that's the thing. Obviously, United, as we've written before, Solskjaer certainly would like to get Haaland to Manchester United. I can see Chappers uh, furrowing his brow, uh, as I sort of suggest. Do you know that. what? I was furrowing my brow at. I was thinking, my God, what kind of deal was Danny Drinkwater on that if he's been moved out, that frees up the funds to bring in Erling Haaland? I was thinking, good grief. Quite a good contract, right? I think. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Exactly. Anyhow, go on. Uh, just, yeah, I mean, Solskjaer's obviously tried to get Haaland. To, I mean, he even tried to get Haaland to Manchester United when he was mould manager and, and recommended them. And, and I, I think that, you know, perhaps the scouting reports weren't as glowing as, as he um, reflected on. And then Mina Rola got involved and, you know, he went to um, Red Bull Salzburg and, and you know, therefore uh, on to Borussia Dortmund afterwards. And, and you know, that, I think that still bruises Manchester United, the way that that deal to Borussia Dortmund happened and, you know, who's ultimately responsible, where was the, the fault? You'd think that with Solskjaer at the club, that would be a, an, a, an appealing thing for a player that he's worked with previously, that, that you know, obviously the Norwegian look as well I think there is a good relationship still there you know it's not like Solskjaer's fallen out with them over that but clearly the Raola factor is a is a big one and does that play into what happens with Pogba you know it's going to be an interesting thing I mean that's you know the, the release clause for 
uh, Erling Haaland at Borussia Dortmund. That's what United basically said no to, and that's what this is the kind of situation they perhaps you know predicted. And you know, do Dortmund have the full uh, wherewithal to, to reject any advances this summer? You know, albeit they don't have to. There's no clause that, that makes them have to sell him. But could they actually say no to something when they know they, they are going to lose him for a set fee um, the summer afterwards? Am I right in saying I don't know, Adam? If you, you probably know more about this than me, but. Um, Minerola and Real Madrid have they haven't they not dealt with him too much in the past few years over yeah. Florentino Perez's understanding of it? Yeah, I mean, as far I was told a few months ago now that Real Madrid have been very very reluctant to to do deals with Minerola. Um, I can't remember a prominent one that they have done with him, but it, it seemed like it was a decision that they've taken to basically say we're Real Madrid and you know we're not going to be necessarily treated it in this way in the way that maybe Manchester United have been over the last few years when they had a series of, of Rayola players. I think Madrid's priority would probably be to try and get Mbappe um, if they can, but obviously that that's very difficult. And just those two big Spanish clubs at the moment just aren't in a position, I don't think, to financially compete with Manchester United, Chelsea, Manchester City this summer. I mean, you speak to clubs, major clubs around Europe at the moment, there is not this sense of we're going to blitz the market this summer. I think that was maybe the hope last August, September, that, you know, a year into the pandemic, maybe things will be a bit easier. I don't think this summer will be, you know, a return to 2019 levels of spending. I think it will phase its way forward. And I think what you'll probably see is those big players at PSG probably realising we're going to have to sign a new contract here and stay here. And it may even be that, you know, Dortmund... You know, it comes down to, I suppose, who enters the bidding for him this this time around. But we saw with Dortmund last summer with Sancho that, that, that you know they are not a club who 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 go easily, um, who see Manchester United or Chelsea coming along and say, "Here you go." But, you know, they make it difficult. They squeeze every last penny out of it. They take you on a bit of a a bit of a ride as well from a public relations point of view. They they talk about it a lot. So it's a big decision for United in terms of if they want to go into that race again and go through that process again. Because if they lose out again and waste a lot of time in doing so and miss out on other targets, it becomes you know really complicated for Ed Woodward. That's mm. an especially good point on Dortmund when you consider the Jadon Sancho situation because he is expected to leave this mm. summer. And though the figure may be lower than it might have been last summer, it may generate the sort of money that negates the need to do business for Haaland at all before his release clause. And that would be the sort of, I mean, we don't know what role Raiola would play in that, but that w- would be akin to the sort of way Dortmund tend to act. I'm just really intrigued when you said the potential options, Manchester City. I, I think that's absolutely fascinating to see what they do with the striker situation without taking this off down another tangent. Mm-hmm. Sergio Aguero has not been um, invited for contract talks over a new deal, suggestions that if he is, it will be a, a pay reduction. There's been all the talk about Lionel Messi. Uh, Mbappe, I don't think, for Manchester City, despite being linked. Haaland, I imagine there's some credible interest there, especially with his and his father's background and his quality, etc. There, there has been, there's been difficulties in the past, hasn't there, with Raiola and Pep? Over ah, Zlatan, yeah. Over really Ibrahimovic. And also, I think he acu- Pep accused Raiola of offering Paul Pogba to Manchester City while he was a Manchester That's United right, yeah, player yeah. on the eve of a derby. Again, I mean, again, football works really strangely. And, we, you know, we've seen so many times over the years where people appear to not be on speaking terms and then... <laughs> 
do multi-million pound deals together. So I don't think it's impossible. Um, and Manchester City are, are crying out for, for a top-level striker. But that is something which, which would have to... The dynamics of that relationship would have to change because I don't think Pep, having gone through Zlatan at Barca and Raiola at Barca, I don't know if he's got the patience for, for you know for three or four years of that relationship. Okay, Adam, thank you. That piece is on The Athletic, which you can read now. Uh, Laurie and David, thank you as well. You can read all the articles uh, we discussed on today's podcast in full on The Athletic. Subscribe now for just £3.99 a month. means you get all the great analysis and the in-depth features from the very best football writers around. Plus, you get ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. So to do that, theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. Uh, and I'm back on this podcast feed on Thursday alongside Matt Slater uh, for our new podcast, The Business of Sport. The Athletic.